You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 77 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm much better than I was last week, which I think everyone will agree is a good thing because (laughs) I think I sounded pretty rough last week. (laughs) A little bit rough. I haven't actually listened to that episode because I think it's it's like it didn't happen as far as I'm concerned. It sounded a bit woe is me, but that's okay because, you know, that's life. woeful. Like I (laughs) honestly, like it was, yeah, not good, miserable. But anyway, I'm back. I'm I'm glad to hear you're back. What have you been up to now that you're actually better? Well, I am, I'm actually, it's interesting. I'm all about the writer centre this week, Valerie. Mm. You have me almost body and soul this week because <laughs> I know you're so lucky. I am today marking lots of assignments and doing my work with the, I've got two uh, freelance writing classes at the moment. So right. I'm working my way through the course with them, which is fun. Mm. And I am also in the home stretch finally, oh my God, of writing the Build Your Author platform course. So it's coming together. First draft will be nearly done and then Valerie will tell me all the things that I have missed out and I will go back and fill those gaps, <laughs> take out boring bits, as my son always says. And um, I'm sure there will be no boring bits. No, God, no. It's fascinating. I tell you, it's all just joys of essential information. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so I'm doing that. That's and because uh, it's school holidays, start Friday, babe. So oh. we're, we're yeah, like it's got to be done. We're into the home stretch of like get everything done that you need to do for the next three weeks, so that you can not have to do anything. Wow, doing. Busy, and you? Busy. What are you uh, doing this week? I am heading off to Brisbane after we finish talking. Actually, oh. so oh. I'll be uh, flying up there and um, catching up with some writer centre grads, but uh, oh. also uh, running um, a workshop in Brisbane as well. So oh. yeah, what a little bit of travel. About? The workshop is about how to build your profile. Oh, exciting! So it'll be. Um, yeah, but it'd be good too. I mean, I really enjoy running the workshop, but I also enjoy coming home after being on the road because, you know, when you're on the road, you just don't quite have everything organised. You don't have all your stuff with you. You don't, you know. Mm. So, but uh, speaking of being on the road, somebody who has been on the road quite a bit is writer's cent- is Australian Writers' Centre graduate Jocelyn Pride. Oh. And we have to do a big shout-out to Jocelyn because she came home with two major awards from the Australian Society of Travel Writers yes. um, Awards. Yeah, Yay. so she not only won the award for Travel Photographer of the Year in Australia, uh, she also won one of the category awards as well for one of her travel writing uh, pieces and it was one that I had I'd given her feedback on. So I am really, really excited for Jocelyn uh, because she, she's a graduate of our um, travel writing course. So 
big – it's a really big deal. These awards are a really big deal. And she yeah. was up there with some of the most experienced veteran travel writers in the industry and she came home with the gong. So well done to Jocelyn. Go, Jocelyn. Well done. But also if – Listeners would like to win a prize. I just wanted to remind everyone to listen to the very end of the podcast of the episode because every week we have a different prize. Mm. For, so for those of you who've been tuning out before the very end, you might be missing out. Uh, but there's a great prize at the end of every uh, at the end of every episode. So do tune in. But let's have a listen. Well, not a listen. A chat. <laughs> oh, all right. Yes. About the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. All right. What have you got for us, Val? What, what have, have you found? Got, what have you what discovered? Have... Well, an interesting one is actually an investigation, and we'll put the link in the show notes, but an investigation that was done by Radio National, their mm-hmm. background briefing program, uh, did an investigation into vanity presses. Mm. So I'm not sure if you've had a chance to look at that one out, but I thought it was really, um, really interesting. Um, it was not. It, it was something that I think a lot of people need to be aware of because you and I are aware of it, mm. but uh, so many people aren't aware that um, that even vanity presses exist and what they do. So I thought we'd have a chat about that if that was all right. All right, let's do that. What do you want to say? Well, I think, okay, I think it's important to to define sort of like if we imagine there are three main types of publishers, of course there are, you know, many more, but there are three main types. One is the traditional publisher, you know, like Random House or Allen and Unwin or Pan Macmillan or whatever. So you have a traditional publisher and we know what they do. They, you know, uh, engage you to become an author for them and they publish your book. Yeah. Then there's also self-publishing and self-publishing is where you basically take on the role of a publisher. So you pay for every, the printing, the distribution, the marketing, and you're also responsible for doing uh, all of the distribution and marketing. You, you know, So you, it's effectively your own little – that book is your own little business. Mm. And self-publishing suits a lot of people, particularly in the business book space because there might be people who only need – you know, 100 or 200 books to to reach everyone in their particular industry or the decision makers in their industry. So no commercial or traditional publisher is ever going to commission them uh, for 200 books, but they could find self-publishing very worthwhile if they wanted to go down that route because they've got a very specific goal in mind. Vanity publishing kind of sits somewhere not quite in the middle, but vanity publishing is basically where you are effectively paying that someone, paying a publisher to print your books for you. And it's yeah. still kind of your responsibility to do a lot of the marketing and, and making it all happen. But they're kind of like a really um, – kind of like a really expensive printer in a sense. Yeah. Would you say that? Like you're, yes. you're just outsourcing the production of the books. Yes. And a lot of people get confused that when a vanity publisher approaches them and says, hey, uh, we think your book's so awesome, we want to publish it. And they they confuse them with traditional publishers because mm-hmm. they use the same language and they, um, you know, have operate in a similar way. But the big difference is that when you are engaged by a – traditional publisher you don't pay any money they pay you money they pay you money hopefully yes yes well if your book sells obviously Mm. but a vanity publisher they say okay well in order for us to publish your book you need to pay us 
$12,000 or $20,000 or $6,000, whatever, a certain amount of money. And so that's what this investigation is about because this investigation uh, by Hagar Cohen talks, uh, basically looks at the world of vanity publishing and the fact that a lot of unsuspecting writers out there or writers who haven't necessarily done their research are being caught up in a situation where they need to pay all this money but are getting very little result. Um, so it's a, it's a bit scary, isn't it? Well, I think the problem comes with the misrepresentation of what a vanity publisher is offering you because I think, as you say, when you don't do your research and you haven't sort of investigated thoroughly, yeah. um, if you don't know, like a lot of people who aren't industry savvy don't understand what a you know don't understand what a vanity publisher is don't understand that they exist mm. and so think that they're dealing with a traditional publisher and if the vanity publisher doesn't actually dissuade you of that notion instead convincing you that the only reason that they need to um that you need to pay them is because they just want to get your um your your work of genius out as quickly as possible mm. and you know if you pay half the costs then that's going to make that happen um i think that's where the problem comes and i but you know there are some fantastic websites out there that i think all authors should be aware of and that they should be um looking at regularly to p- before you send your work out anywhere mm. check out the publisher that you're planning to send it to um there's a publisher a, a, a website writer beware Mm. Um, it's an American site, but it's got, it's got, it's an international thing. It's got publishers from everywhere on it. Um, most of the sort of, you know, state writer centers and things like that will have this information. Like do your research, like understand who you're dealing with before Mm. you sort of send your work out, I think is probably the key to the whole thing. And if someone sends you a contract and you don't understand a lot of what's in the contract, please don't sign it. Mm. Get some advice. The Australian Society of Authors will give you advice. Um, Alex Adset is is an agent who does also uh, just contract negotiation stuff on an hourly rate. You know, sometimes you've got to pay for advice and pay for information and make sure that you know what you're dealing with. And I, I just can't stress that more highly. I've had a few emails over the last couple of weeks from different authors asking me questions about this stuff. And I mean, I can't give you advice on this sort of thing, mm. but I'm going to point you in the direction of people that can. And I think that it's really important that you then go that step further and do the research, find out what you need to know before you sign anything. Yeah, absolutely. And the Australian Society of Authors also have a list of um, a people, a list of publishers who, uh, you know, kind of appear dodgy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so definitely check with them. Hmm. But yes, uh, so yeah, beware that not all publishers out there are, are dodgy or anything like that, but definitely do your research and talk to the Australian Society of Accountants if you are getting an offer of from a publisher. Oh, sorry, of, sorry, Australian <laughs> Society of Authors, sorry. I don't know that the Australian Society of Accountants would be very helpful of, in this area. <laughs> <laughs> of authors and it haven't had caffeine yet um uh if if you have received a contract um from a publisher who especially if they're asking you to pay that's right and the same goes for you know literary agents um if if they ask you to pay to read your manuscript which some dodgy organizations do Mm. they're out there do not go there 
Like no reputable literary agent is going to want a reading fee to read your manuscript. Trust me, none. So if they ask for a reading fee, find someone else to send your manuscript to. Yes. Well, on to more um, happier topics. (laughs) I have a link this week from um, Publishers Weekly and it's 10 Tech Tools for Writers. And, you know, there are some obvious ones that we have spoken about before, like Evernote. We love Evernote. But I just thought I would um, highlight a couple of the others. And actually, have you ever used Ancestry.com? No, my dad uses it because he's a mad family historian like right. he's traced our family history back I don't know as about as far as you can go with it on all sides and he's also doing my husband and you know anybody that's has got some vague connection to the family like please don't come to my house because he's probably <laughs> gonna you know start researching your family history for you so he uses it all the time but I've never used it from a writing perspective right Yes. Well, that's um, certainly if you're into historical fiction or if you, you know, need to look stuff up of that will give you an idea of maybe even names of a certain era is probably mm-hmm. quite useful. But mm-hmm. another useful one is Freedom, which is uh, on Mac and PC. And basically, it will kick you off the internet for whatever period of time you decide. So if you want to write for an hour, use Freedom for an hour and it will just make you only do that. So it's, it's you know, if you, if you need that kind of enforced discipline. Mm. But one that I really like and I really want to get <laughs> yeah. is called Dust Keyboard, D-A-S Keyboard. And it says here, with, like when you press keys on most modern keyboards, you're just pressing on a little rubber mound underneath. But Dust Keyboards are made with actual bits of metal. So each key makes a connection you can feel when you strike it. It's satisfyingly loud, like an old-fashioned type. Oh, Valerie, the last thing you need is that. You're loud enough on just like a normal old, you know, quiet, silent keyboard. I can hear you typing from here, practically. Why would you require bits of metal? (laughs) That would be so cool. Oh, no. And your neighbours are ducking for cover. I know. But the bizarre thing is that there is one version of it which has no letters on the keys. So you don't have letters on your keys anyway. Well, yeah, they all kind of rub off. They rub off, yeah, because you strike your keyboard with such force, (laughs) alacrity, shall we say. (laughs) But it's good for people who want to learn how to touch type because then you have no option but to know where the keys are. Mm. But the other thing which an increasing number of my friends are using is the very desk. Yes, my physio told me last week that I should consider a standing desk. Right. Are mm. you going to get one? I don't know. I, I Yeah, I probably should. I, I'd have to rearrange my whole life and house to do it. But um, I probably, given yeah, our discussions in the last couple of weeks about RSI and assorted things, mm. um, it's probably something I should do. I don't think about it that much, you know, because I am pretty active in the sense that mm. I, I am getting up quite regularly and I do, you know, walk and garden and stuff during my day because I do understand, you know, that long periods of sitting are not good for a person. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's a little bit like going to Scrivener for me in the sense that, <laughs> oh, I'm so, I'm so like nodding to change on any level. Yes. <laughs> So for me, it's like, oh, really? I have to learn to type standing up? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Would you get one? Well, they're not the most attractive things in the world. 
the very I don't think disc- we can judge it on looks. Well, <laughs> this, this is all about you know productivity and 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 health. Yes, they're but- like those orthotic sandals. You know, they're really ugly but very very effective. I think. That's true, but they're, you know, if you're wearing orthotic sandals, they're always under the table, people don't see, but your very desk is like, you got to look at it all the time. It's right in front of you. So mm. I, I I do think that there's po- it's possibly beneficial mm. um, and it's certainly more economically, well, it's cheaper than those sit-stand desks, which are, you know, like not gas lift, but there's a motor that makes mm. it go up, which mm. probably is something that would appeal to me more, but I don't want to part with the money. Mm. So... I don't know. Maybe I'll just stand up and walk around a bit. Well, that's. I, I think. I think I'd need one that just kind of went up and down because mm. I think I just. I don't know. I don't want to stand up to type three thousand words. Not really. No. Not really. No. Look at us. We're so old. Are we? Like, oh my god! This newfangled technology. <laughs> But let's move on to our next link, which is from The Right Life, and it is six embarrassing grammar mistakes you simply don't want to make. Now, there are a number here, like too many pronouns, of course, the usual, misused apostrophes, um, common confusion, but the one that gets me <laughs> okay, is incorrect capitalization. It drives me bonkers does it drive you bonkers oh my god i just like laugh that it drives you bonkers i have to say does it not drive you bonkers well i don't like it when people use it well i have to say i probably do it myself sometimes like sometimes i actually i do like for emphasis i don't do it i do it on purpose yeah but that's different capitalize on purpose yes oh okay this is that's different all right yeah, when you're doing it on purpose for effect or for style or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when I, I, what I'm referring to is when people just feel the need to freaking capitalize the beginning of every word. Right. And it happens a lot, especially when people write dot points. Or yes. I don't understand why. You just capitalize the first letter of the first the, the the first word. I mean not the first word, the first letter of the first word in the dot point. Not every single um not every single word. I just see it all the time. And even when people are, you know, typing oh, just writing blog posts drives me bonkers. Do you know what? I have to think a lot of this stuff, like I'm reading through this list of things and beyond the comma and the apostrophe and stuff, which of course we could discuss for days, but mm. let's not because everyone does. Mm. Um <clears throat> Sorry, I have to clear my throat on that note. <laughs> the um, I think incorrect capitalization and the fragment thing, and mm. also starting sentences with but and and. A lot of it comes from blogging. Mm. I have to say that I think that it's a stylized thing that has come through with the, as as blogging has grown, and it's it's because it's kind of like an informal, you know, intimacy thing that people use. And I've noticed since I um. Since you know, and I'm teaching the freelance writing course with the Australian Writers Centre, mm. that we we do get a lot of bloggers come through the course, and yes. their names I recognise because obviously I'm in the blogosphere and I see them. Mm. It's it's a it's a stylistic thing that has come from blogging, and when when they're writing feature, when I'm marking feature writing assignments, I actually make the point of saying that stuff is okay on your blog but it is actually not okay in a feature article. Mm. You need to be able to differentiate the different mediums and the different styles. But it is a stylistic thing, fragmented sentences, capitalising things for emphasis like I'm doing it myself Mm. Um, and sort of, you know, uh, wordiness, 
but this, but that short sentences, it's a very much a blogging thing. And I, and I have noticed it creeping through from that. I do agree that the um, fragments and the and and but is uh, from blogging, but I see a lot of the capitalization in the corporate world where they will say oh, that yeah. um, the director, capital D, yeah. will take the document, capital yeah. D, <laughs> to, to the stationary cupboard, capital S, capital C. Yeah, like, well, because the stationary cupboard is very important. <laughs> So we're going to emphasise that right now. Yeah. No, it's true though, and and the fragment thing is is hilarious. I had to, but I'm I'm terrible because I um realised that I was using myself the dot dot dot. What are they called in actual life? Ellipses. Ellipses. Ellipses yeah. Oh, and I, I and it was coming from blogging, and it was suddenly it was appearing in everything, and I thought, oh, mm. I've got to stop this. You know, there's a reason we have a full stop, Alison. Start yes. using it. You know, really. <laughs> anyway. Fair enough. Well, let's move on then to another link, which is about what literary agents um, want to see before signing a writer. Mm. Because a lot of people say, I'm going to find an agent, I'm going to find an agent. And then they find agents because they're not that hard to come by. You just Google them and there's lists of agents. But when they approach an agent, they kind of just say, "Oh, do you want to take me on?" And the and it's like it's it's got to be a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and apart from keeping your making sure you have a really good query letter, don't because I've seen ones where they tell your life their life story. It's like they don't need to know your life story in your query letter. It oh. needs to be really clear and to the point what your uh, you know book or your manuscript is, is about. But also I ha- hear about people, or I've seen people um, say, okay, here's my manuscript and it's, it's, a, it's about 60% done and I'm, but I know what's going to happen at the end. <laughs> Oh, yes. (laughs) And, you know, that doesn't necessarily always work either in general um, unless it's the most amazing 60% of your book ever and make sure – because you really need to finish your book and polish it. You need to get it into the best state, uh, you know, possible. But the other one that gets me is, you know, sending a query letter to an agent let's say you write adult fiction fiction for adults and that agent really specialises in children's books, which shows that you haven't done your homework. Well, I think our interview recently with Jacinta de Marse, I can't remember what episode that was, but um, it was a recent one. She, that was one of the most important things she talked about. She was, she was quite adamant that you needed to make sure you were sending your work to someone who was going to be open to receiving your work. There is mm-hmm. absolutely no point in just, well, A, sending out the exact same query letter to like every single you know agent in the book. That's mm. for number one. Um, but as she pointed out, every single agent or publisher or wherever you're sending your stuff to these days has a website and they're generally really, really thorough mm. about exactly what they want, exactly how to send the work, exactly the kind of things they're looking for. And most importantly, things that they are not accepting at that time. Like at the moment, I think she has her books closed for, she, she does generally take children's authors on, mm. but she at the moment is not accepting submissions for children's authors. So don't send them. Yeah. There's no point in sending your work to someone who is not receiving that sort of work at that time. I think yeah. it's really, really important because all you're doing is wasting your time. Yeah. 
Look for someone who is looking for you, um, who does want to look at the kind of work that you're sending out. Um, and if you haven't listened to that interview with Jacinta, have a good listen to it because it's 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 um very thorough and really worth having it's listened to. Episode seventy one. <clears throat> so have a Thank look you, at Valerie. episode 71. But let's move on to uh, our writing craft book this week. What is it? Uh, well, interestingly, this uh, this particular link was sent to us by one of our regular listen- listeners, uh, Nicholas Party, and um, he said, you guys talk about this book all the time and I think <laughs> that it's worth having a look at this link. So this is uh, – it's on time.com. It's 21 pieces of writing advice from Stephen King. Um, and we, of course, do mention Stephen King's book on writing regularly because it is actually one of my favourite books about it's writing. Excellent, yes. Um, so this is – 21 key points from that particular book um, on how to be an amazing writer. Mm. And if you are, you know, if you haven't read the book, uh, you could pretty much just do the 21 points and have a pretty clear idea of what's going on. Um, I personally think that the first one, which is stop watching television, (laughs) is is one of the best, not because he says, you know, read as much as possible. But I also think the number of people that say to me, I really want to write a book, but I don't have time. And I mm. say to them, how much TV do you watch each week? And they say three or four hours a night. I'm going, you certainly have time to write a book. You just have to make the time. Mm. Um, so that to me is is quite important. Um, but there's a whole lot, you know, like prepare for more failure and criticism than you think you can deal with. I mean, everybody says, yeah, I'm so ready for the rejection. But are you ready for 22 rejections or 23 <laughs> rejections? Are you ready for that? Um, so make sure that that's, you know, that the, the I mean, everybody's – I think that the the thing is we all think we're different. We yeah. all think that ours is the work of genius that is going to be picked up by 50 publishers and everyone's going to want it straight away. They're not. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I also like – I also like number three and four. Number three is don't waste time trying to please people and that ties mm-hmm. in with number four, which is write primarily for yourself because I often meet people who say, you know, I'm going to write a novel. I'm trying to analyse the market to see where there's a gap in the market and to see whether it's – you know, it used to be vampires and now what is it because I'm going to make sure that I write a book that's going to um, really fill a gap in the market. But, you know, write for yourself. Yeah, because if you start if you if you try to chase the market, you're always going to miss it by two years. Mm. It takes a long time to get a book published. Yes. So if you're writing a book that you think is going to like is is going to be perfect for the market right now, by the time you finished it, send it out, done all the stuff, the edits and whatever, mm. you're two years down the track. And what the market wants today is not necessarily what the market wants in two years. And what the market wants in two years, it doesn't even know yet. Mm. So you have to write the thing that's just going to be so amazing that the market's going to go, oh, that's you know, that's the thing. Yeah. I personally like Don't Be Pretentious. That's one of my <laughs> personal favourites. And, you know, David Ogilvie wrote in a memo to his employees, never use jargon words like reconceptualize, demassification, attitudinally, judgmentally. <laughs> they are the hallmarks of a pretentious ass. Yeah, right. And I think that those kind of words are the hallmark of a pretentious ass, no matter what you're writing, yes. generally speaking. So, yeah. All right. Important. So let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Let's. Who have we got? Well, this week we spoke with Larissa Dubecki. Now, most people will be familiar with Larissa Dubecki because of her byline in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. She Hmm. has been a food critic and food reviewer for a, a very long time, but she 
not many people know that she actually spent 10 years working as a waitress. In fact, when she started her cadetship at Fairfax, she was still waiting tables in on the weekends. And after 10 years of lots of stories uh, from lots of different restaurants, she has written a memoir with a great name. <laughs> it's called Prick with a Fork. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Okay. So uh, we have a chat to Larissa, so here she is. Larissa DeBecky has been a restaurant critic and food writer for the past 10 years, including six years as chief critic for The Age newspaper and The Age Good Food Guide. Her work has also appeared in Gourmet Traveller and Guardian Australia, and she currently writes a weekly restaurant column for Time Out. She has appeared on MasterChef a number of times and has been a judge on Iron Chef Australia. She's also spent 10 years as a waitress. Her memoir is Prick with a Fork, The World's Worst Waitress Spills the Beans. So, Larissa, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Now, for readers who haven't read Prick with a Fork yet, and the tagline is The World's Worst Waitress Spills the Beans, uh, what can you tell us about it? Um, well, Prick with a Fork is a memoir. I'm calling it a black comedy gonzo memoir, actually, to give it its full juice. Um, it's oh. about the, the 10 years I spent as a really horrible waitress back in my 20s and early 30s. Um, before I went and became a food writer. Mm. And so what, you know, you say you've become a food writer. When, have you always wanted to be a food writer? You know, did you, is that something that you thought of or even knew existed when you were a child? Oh, not whatsoever. And it's not something that I ever thought about um, when I was waitressing. It's something that came about weirdly and organically after the whole waitressing thing when um, I did a news cadetship at the Age newspaper back in 2000. Um, and the, the aim was to be a political journalist. Um, and I, I went through all of the news rounds like you do when you're a cadet and I did state politics and police and, you know, chased ambulances for a while. Um, but I gradually realised that my real passion lay with feature writing and um, my husband being a complete hospitality tragic, um, he was the one who sort of pushed me to go and ask if I could start some reviewing for the Good Food Guide that The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald still publish every year. And um, yeah, the, the editor was very kind to take pity on a, a greenhorn and it just snowballed from there. I started off getting the, the lowest entry level restaurants to review and it, they liked my work and each year I'd get better and better restaurants and more and more of them. Mm. And yeah, it just really took on a life of its own until eventually it became my bread and butter, so to speak. Were you into food though, you know, or you said your husband was a hospitality tragic, but were you a foodie? Were you, are you interested in cooking or anything like that? Are you into food? I picked it up by osmosis. When I met Ben 17 years ago, I ate two minute noodles and Vegemite toast pretty much full time. I was a vegetarian as well and, you know, one of those sort of pale and undernourished vegetarians who, who don't eat the right things. So it's it's been quite funny. I've I've learned so much about food. Now I adore it. I'm just the world's most ridiculous glutton. Um, but yeah, it was a very steep learning curve for a while there. Are you still vegetarian? No, no way. <laughs> I, I I took meat up again um, pretty quickly. I have to say, I've been a vegetarian for 14 years, and then um, after I met Ben, I yeah decided to use my canine teeth again. 
So you were a waitress for 10 years. Was it after the waitressing period you decided to apply for a cadetship to, at Fairfax? The two actually overlap. So I've been waitressing my way through university where I did an arts and law degree and then a postgrad journalism. And um, I was even still waitressing when I was doing my cadetship at the age because being a real glass, glass half empty kind of mentality, I kept thinking, well, if this journalism caper doesn't work out, I need a little fallback. So I, I'd do my week at the age and then on Friday night I'd go and put on my apron again <laughs> um, and work at this gastro pub in, in, a, in Melbourne. So you started doing food reviews and, and then getting you know, higher up the food reviewing ladder, so to speak. A lot of people find writing about food challenging because they think that there's only so much, so many ways you can describe a mushroom or a gnocchi or whatever. How, what are your tips for people to make food writing unique? Mm. It's, it's actually a really tricky one. I think food writing is one of the most difficult genres you can tackle because you're trying to convey to the audience an incredibly subjective experience, which mm. is the stuff that you're putting in your mouth, chewing and swallowing. Um, I still find it absurd sometimes. I'll be sitting at my computer trying to think of how to describe yet another panna cotta and I'll just, the, the, the shadow will pass over me. I have to go and lie down for a while until I, I, I get my equilibrium back because it just seems so weird. Yeah. Um, and the English language is incredibly um, ill-equipped to describe food. Other languages are, are better. I read a great essay by, I think it was A.A. Gill, about how German has some fantastic words, adjectives to describe food, but English, you know, we're stuck with these horrible things like moist and succulent. Yeah. And I mean, you really can't use words like that because they're cliched and they're horrible. So um, I guess my the, the way I eventually started approaching food writing was to... Oh, just to try and write as entertainingly as possible and to try and create metaphors um, and crazy, crazy similes uh, and to tell the, the experience of eating at a restaurant as a, as a kind of... Um, it's like going to a movie or it's like going to a concert, really. It's a form of entertainment rather than sitting there and really, you know, bashing yourself over the head of to, to describe what a piece of steak tastes like. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's inherently difficult though. Yes. Yeah, you talk about uh, describing yet another panna cotta. Uh, do you ever get sick of food or get sick of dining out, sick of sampling the latest gastro pub or fancy restaurant? No. I, <laughs> I think the minute you become sick of it is the minute you should retire from that job because really, if, if, yeah, if, you, if you're sick of dining out, then you sick of life I think yeah um, you know there are some nights I, I tend to go out two or three nights a week to review and you know occasionally when it's the depths of winter and there's some terrible um, terrible show on TV that I love watching <laughs> I sort of groan and moan about it but once I'm out I'm always really excited um, even if it's a restaurant that I'm not expecting to be much job it's it's still there are restaurants are a great arena of entertainment and I think that's why people are so obsessed with them and why they've become this um a very attractive arena for writers. Mm -mm. So back to the book, when did the idea come about? Was it something that came, you know, that during the days of, of being a waitress or was it something that came later much when you were already writing about food? 
Mm. It came along during my time as a waitress. Um, uh, everyone developed their repertoire of funny stories that you tell at dinner parties. Mine always seemed to centre around my hideous career as a waitress. Um, and I've been dining out on those stories for years. And, you know, there was always this thing percolating in the back of my mind that, God, this would make a fantastic book one day. Um, and again, the fact that I, you know, my husband is in hospitality, he owns a couple of cafes, you know, we, we, we talk hospital way too much, it must be really boring to outsiders. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I find it thoroughly entertaining and interesting. And, um, yeah, so it's, it, it was, I was actually busy working full-time, I suppose. I was at the age as their full-time reviewer. Um, I was too busy working full-time to ever get this thing off the ground. And then um, when I took a redundancy last year, I just had time on my hands. And I thought, you know, it's now or never. Mm. And I'm lucky I found a, a published for it. So you took the redundancy and you thought, okay, I'm going to write this book. Did you – how much of it had been written or was it really all in your head at that stage? It was all in my head. I'd scribbled notes here and there. I had a – my, my – top drawer in my office was full of tiny little scraps of paper with um, my um, unintelligible scrawl on it. And so I went through those, but mostly it just came pouring out of my head once I actually sat down at my computer. So tell, tell us about that writing process. Did you set yourself like a certain number of months or a certain word count per day? Or did you, you know, how did you actually get it out there, give it a structure that would yeah. make sense to people, it would, that would be readable to people? And um, yeah, had, just talk us through that. Word counts per day terrify me. I, I can't work well with that, I mean, I, which is funny for a journalist to say that because journalism is all about word count. Yeah. The writer will say to you, I want 800 words on this, go. Um, I found when writing something that was intended to be 100,000 words that if I'd set myself a 1,000 word a day deadline, I, I would have constantly failed and felt bad about myself for it. Um, there were some days that actually went into the negative so where I went editing myself and, um, you know, and I'd wind up with fewer words than I had started with and that is just so depressing. So I know that word counts do suit some writers, but for me it would just be like, um, just be like beating myself over the head with a stick. So instead, yeah, I just, I just plotted. I plotted away and I tried really hard not to look at the progress I was making yeah. Um, and I don't, I'm not a great plotter. I didn't have this incredible chart on my wall of where the, the story was going and what I was doing with it. I just, I, I tried to get with the zen of it. I know that sounds ridiculous, but um, ultimately the way it flowed wound up being the way it was published, which I was really pleased about. Everything sort of slotted into place and maybe it's because it's memoir, it's lived experience, so it's not something that you have to think about too hard because it, yeah, it's it's something that makes sense inside your own head rather than some story that you're trying to conjure out of nothing. Mm. Um, so maybe that's the big difference. So you've had the luxury of, I, I assume many people would think it's a luxury, of having some time to commit to this. And so... When you did do that, did you decide then I'm going to only concentrate on this? Did you pursue other things or was this your main focus and you thought I'm I'm just focusing on getting this book out? 
Um, I, I did think that largely. I still had some bills to pay, so I was doing some freelancing as well. I was called by time out to, um, to see if I'd be interested in doing their restaurant reviews and, you know, who says no to that. So mm-hmm. I was doing a, a bit of reviewing, but mostly my project was concentrating on this book. Um, and so, you know, 80% of the time spent at my computer was simply plotting away on Prick with a Fork. Mm. Um, and that is such a luxury. I'm well aware of how many people are actually working full time and getting up at 5am so that they can bash out a few hours before they go off to their job. And, oh my God, I have so much respect for that because, as I said, when I was working full time, I never had any emotional energy left over to con- contemplate anything. So watching The Bachelor on TV. <laughs> When you were writing a memoir, you reveal, you know, lots about yourself, but you also reveal a lot about other people and other places that you've worked. Was there a fine line there or were you scared at all that you would be identifying people who would come and say, how dare you say that about me (laughs) or whatever? Completely. <laughs> yeah, that was a huge thing. I mean, everybody has been, well, and a few nearest and dearest who I asked if they didn't mind me using their real name mm-hmm. are, still, are still in it as themselves. But on the whole, I changed names and locations and all the rest of it because it's, it's a very warts and all kind of memoir. It's not really gilding the lilies. And I didn't want it to, I, I'm, I'm not looking for, uh, to put anyone in the mark or to get revenge on any chef who was mean to me. It was just meant to be a semi-funny, semi-poignant memoir that doesn't hurt anyone except myself, really, because I'm fully identified and I think mostly the joke's on me. So I'm trying to have a good sense of humour about how much personal stuff I've revealed. Um, I'm still living in fear a little bit of my mother reading it because she hasn't read it yet. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, there's some explanation needed there. (laughs) Now, do you, you, you say that you didn't have a word count goal, but did you have any kind of writing routine? Like, I woke up at this time, I had a cup of tea, I got to my computer, whatever. Did you have some kind of routine to help you on your day? Oh, very much. I'm, I'm a routine person and I also have two small children, so they really help. You've yeah. got to have routine if you've got little kids. So they tend to wake me up at 6.30 every morning and the focus is on them until I pack the older one off to school and the, the little one um, gets taken care of by his, his grandma or he goes to childcare. Once that happens around 9 o'clock, I, I describe it as my two hours of power because between 9 and 11, I will get most of my work done for the day. Wow. It's just, yeah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a morning person and I'm firing on all cylinders once I've had my strong cup of tea. Um, and I really hate being disturbed between 9 and 11 because it's, yeah, that, that time is crucial to me. And I, if I feel I've wasted that time, the rest of the day is totally thrown out and I'm grumpy and horrible to live with, I think. <laughs> I, I can't work at night. Um, right. And I wish I could because that would be so beneficial because once you've got the kids in bed at 8 o'clock, mm. to be able to work until, say, midnight would be an absolute blessing. But mm. I just, it's not in my makeup. Um, I've read, I, I read the author of The, the Tiger's Wife, that amazing um, Serbian mm. American novelist, um, she writes all night. And I was thinking, wow, maybe I should try and recalibrate so I can sit up all night. <laughs> but no, that's never going to happen. Wow, you obviously get a lot of a lot done in two hours. <laughs> maybe it's the coffee, just making me try to really <laughs> What did you find the most challenging thing about writing this book? 
Oh my goodness. Um, I think just writing a memoir that resonated beyond just my experience. Um, mm. So I think there are two types of memoir. One that is just me, 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 you know, it's putting the moi in memoir. And the other sort, which I find much more interesting to read, is the sort that deals with themes and universals. And I really wanted my memoir to be in the in the latter category, and I, I hope that it is. So it was about moving elegantly between my personal story and greater themes in the hospitality industry. Um, I also see it as a bit of a feminist polemic because it's got a lot to do with being a young woman in her 20s dealing with a particularly chauvinistic industry. Mm. Um, and it's also just to do with the sheer, you know, the funny horrors of being in your 20s and trying to figure yourself out when you really don't have a clue and trying to pretend to the world that you know what you're doing. Mm. Um so I guess it was finding the greater story because um, it's very easy to write about yourself and that's why memoirs are so popular and they're so popular among writers, sorry. Um, and that's why there are so many of them on the bookshelves, but I really wanted it to stand out for, for reasons that went beyond the fact that I've got some funny waitressing stories. <laughs> now, you've written this memoir. Are you writing another book now? What's next? Uh, yeah, I've got two ideas that are sort of thrumming away in the back of my head at the moment. One is a piece of fiction, which will be pretty interesting because um, I think writing fiction is an entirely different piece. Yeah. Um, but it's a story that I've been thinking about for quite some time that I won't bore you with because it would take me half an hour to <laughs> sort of explain it thematically. Um, and another thing was I was thinking of another piece of non-fiction, a bit of um, a bit of lived experience um, that I'm, I'm going to try and um, suggest it to my publisher. So, <laughs> yeah, try and package it up and write a sample chapter for them. Great. Yeah. Now, when you are writing about food, not so much your memoir, but when you are doing your food critiquing and reviewing, what is the most rewarding thing about that? Like, what do you love doing? I mean, apart from loving going to restaurants and the actual art of writing, what's the most rewarding thing about that? I, w I was going to give you my glib answer of um, being paid to eat and write about it. Um, but uh, oh, I, my most rewarding part is entertaining people, I suppose. Um, I always will write on the assumption that 95% of the people who read my restaurant reviews aren't actually ever going to go to the restaurant. Um, it's, you know, it's a small proportion of people who actually go out to restaurants yes. habitually and, you know, two, two or three times a week or even once a week. It's, it's an absolute luxury. So, um, you know, and I read a study once that most people read restaurant critiques to be entertained and, you know, to, to live vicariously. So I often read theatre reviews and I rarely make it to the, to the theatre because I'm so busy going to restaurants. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I just like to think that I'm giving people a story um, and something that's relatable, even though they aren't intending to make the booking anytime soon. Mm -mm. And what would your advice be to people who are interested in writing about food and reviewing, people who um, don't have their foot in the door yet? Do you have any mm. advice on how they can get in? Mm. Well, I guess you could look at the rise of the food blogger as a salient tale about self-starters. Um, there are just so many food bloggers out there these days who, you know, I believe some of them get an immense amount of traffic on their websites. Mm. There are also, you know, you, you crowd websites 
um, such as um, Urban Spoon and mm. I think it's now called Zomato. Zomato, yeah. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and various sites such as Broadsheet, um, which are always looking for people who have a way with words and have a love of restaurants. So, yeah, it's just about keeping on pestering and writing some um, sample reviews is always a fantastic idea. Just think of yourself and write a really decent sample, 600-word review that you can show to various editors um, Mm. to see if you can get your foot in the door that way. Now, you've become synonymous with food and this memoir further consolidates that. Would you ever consider moving beats, so to speak, moving to another genre, covering something else, becoming an expert and writing about something else? Or is this, you know, your true passion, you want to stay with this forever? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very interested in a, in a much wider array of things. I sometimes think it's hilarious that I've become pigeonholed as, as food person um, because, it, as I said, it was just almost a mistake the way it happened. Um, and, and it's a very comfortable little niche, but, yes, I... I I'm well um, well attuned to the joys of writing about popular culture. I love writing about TV. I do TV reviews um, for the for the Green Guide each week, um, and yeah, just a whole gamut of of different things. So yeah, I, I, I am interested in sort of maybe even using this as a springboard in, in into different forms of writing. I suppose mm, yes, like fiction and that. Yeah, mm. yeah, very much so. And I have to ask, do you cook? <laughs> <laughs> I do, but my husband's better. <laughs> like, do you cook the kind of food that you go and review? You know, I'm not no. talking about spaghetti or anything. No, no, no. I um, I I do cook. I am very much into cooking rustic, hearty, honest food. Um, I would never try and replicate the kind of food that I eat routinely when I go out. But nor am I interested in eating restaurant style food when I'm at home. I like eating. Um, I, I often revert to my vegetarian past. Um, mm. Particularly, I'm going through an Indian phase at the moment, where I'm enjoying making these um, Indian vegetarian curries that require about 25 different exotic spices that I have to go and source. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's fun, but I would never describe myself as an amazing cook by any means. So writing a, you know, 100,000 words, writing a whole book is so different to writing an 800-word review. How did it feel um, changing gears like that? And and was it a big adjustment to realise, I've got to write (laughs) like 100,000 words. I've got to write so much more than I'm ever used to. Yeah. I remember the very first day when I sat down thinking, I'm going to write this book, was terrifying looking at that blank computer screen thinking, mm. oh my God, where am I going to find 100,000 words on this subject? But yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's it's a journey of a million steps, but you know, each day is each day is a couple of steps and yeah. that's the only way to look at it. Otherwise, um, you know, if, if you're like me, you'll get the fear and just stop. <laughs> and yeah. finally, prick with a fork. <laughs> now, uh, who came up with or how did you come up with that title? Oh, that was me. It was after a few glasses of champagne, actually. Um, <laughs> I don't know where. It just popped into my head from somewhere and I exclaimed to my husband, pretty quick the fourth. Um, and then I, I ran it by my publisher and they all thought it was hilarious. So yeah. we ran with it. Yeah. Fantastic. It's hilarious. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Larissa. Thank you. 
So there you go, Larissa Dubecki. How exciting. Mm. That was brilliant. I think it's also important to mention at um, the difference between memoir and biography because I've, I've you know, met some people when um, – you know, in, in writing classes and stuff like that. And someone relatively young will say, oh, yeah, I'm writing a memoir on my, on whatever, a certain aspect of their life. And an older I've, – I've watched this happen where an older person will say, oh, my goodness, how you haven't even lived yet. How could you possibly write a memoir? And it's like, well, there's a big difference between a memoir and a biography. You don't mm. have to have lived – till you're 60 or 70 or whatever before you write a memoir because a memoir is a certain period of time in your life. It might only mm. have been about the last two years or a certain experience or, or whatever. So I think it's important just also to remind people that um, there is a difference between mm, memoir and biography. But we have – what's our working writer's tip this week? Um. Good question. That's a great question. Oh, I know what it is. I remembered. Um, So one of the questions that I get asked all the time is how long does it take me to write an article? Yes. Or actually the question is also how long should it take me to write an article, which I find interesting because the answer to how long should it is often, you know, um, how long is a piece of string because yes. we all approach our work in different ways. However, I'm going to ask you, Valerie, how long does it take you to write an article? For me, it depends entirely on, well, how much research there is involved. Right. So um, because obviously if I need to interview five people as opposed mm-hmm. to one person, mm-hmm. it's going to take five times as long in the research and interviewing stage. Of course. So I'm going to make the assumption in answer to this question that all of the research and interviewing done has it. been done. It's all in front of you. You've got every single thing you could ever possibly require to write this article yep. lined up. Okay. How long does it take you to write it? So then it's a de- it's dependent on, oh, how distracted I am, how much I procrastinate and when the deadline is mm. because basically oh, – yes. Um, and the reality is that deadlines are, you know, an amazing motivating thing. Mm. And if I have done, and I know I've done all of my research, and I've got a deadline tomorrow, mm. uh, and it's 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 you know the evening of the night before, mm. I will definitely finish that article in. Mm. Um, you know, and it might take me it, – it, it depends on how long it is. Something... Okay. It's a 1,000-word article. Okay. And it's due tomorrow. And it's due tomorrow. Um, I could easily do that in one and a half to two hours if it's 1,000 words and it's due tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Having said that, if it was 11 o'clock in the morning and it was due at 12 o'clock, mm-hmm. I could probably do that as well, but it, obviously it would be – uh, a bit stressful. Mm-hmm. Mm. How okay. about you? A thousand words an hour. Right. Okay. That's how I work. Yeah. There you so go. So if I've got everything in front of me, and I've done all the stuff, then yes. I, that's I allocate in my head a thousand words an hour to actually write the story. And that's that's very efficient. So that's good. And I think it's important to point out that it, that's because you know I've been doing uh, it for one hundred and seventy five years. Well, not quite one hundred seventy five years, but it you feels know, like one hundred and seventy five years. Over twenty no, years. That's something that I mean. Obviously, that's something that I have got you know much much better at over the years. Yes, it's, it's the kind of thing where, but it's also it's very handy from the perspective of of I write fiction the same way. I just want to point that out. Mm. Thousand words an hour. Um, wow. 
it's just it's a way of it's a way of me going okay um I'm going to allocate my time to write this story. I'm getting paid this much money. Yep. It's going to take me this long to actually do the interviews and whatever. And then, I'm, and then in my head, I'm like, well, it'll take me a thousand words an hour to, to actually complete the story. How long is it going to take me to divide the fee by this much money? And uh, yeah, okay, I can yep. do it for that. So, so cast so, your mind back. I want you to cast your mind back, say twenty years when oh you were God. more. Say after you know one when or I was two a years experience, squeak, yeah. yeah. Yes. So when you were starting out, mm. try and cast your mind back. How long would it have taken you then? Mm. Uh, look, to be honest with you, I've always been. I, I'm a fast writer. Like the researching aspect of it used to take me much longer mm. back in the day. Mm. Um, the actual pulling it together, you know, it depends how many quotes you use and sure. you know all that sort of stuff. Say maybe, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half to do a thousand words then, maybe two, right? maybe twice as long. Okay, let's okay. go Okay, so I reckon back in the days when we were sitting next to each other at Clio mm. Magazine, mm. if I had to do a thousand words back then, I reckon that would have taken me three hours. Mm. So obviously it's uh, um, it's a lot quicker now, but back then, all those years ago, yeah, mm. I, I reckon it would have taken me three probably three hours, including some distractions. So I guess two and I think a half. it's one of those things too that I – like as far as productivity goes, I mean people are often saying to me, oh, you, you know, you do so much stuff. I, I think that um, I have always been, particularly with freelance articles, a one-draft writer always. Yeah. And I think that it's kind of like a superpower that you don't even realise you have mm. until you have it. Mm. And it's – I never have – I never actually recognised or acknowledged how much of a – gift that was to me yeah. as a someone who was having to produce an enormous amount of work, particularly working on an on a magazine. And it's not till you go freelance and you look back and you think about it. Um if you can turn yourself into someone who can write a story from start to finish and not you know and then read over it but not actually have to do a whole lot of rewriting and reworking. Yeah. Um as an efficiency thing, it's an incredible tool in a toolbox. I think also if you have been blessed somewhere along the line, and I mean, maybe you have or you ha or you didn't know it, if you've been blessed somewhere along the line with a really good editor, yes. you learn so quickly yes. then. Because I reckon back then in the Clio days when it was going to take me, you know, it would take me three hours and pro I wasn't a one-draft writer at the time. But then at somewhere along my, in my career, I got an editor who was just so good and and I learned so much from her and we actually interviewed her husband, Brandon Vanover, um, mm. uh, a few episodes ago. Mm. Uh, but she, I, I learned so much from that editor that my writing transformed and I became a one-draft writer because of mm. that. So I think maybe – could you think you've been blessed somewhere along the line with a – Yeah, enti yeah entirely possible. I, I, look, I, I had – I remember when I did my cadet – because I, I did a cadetship um, – to become a journalist. And yes, in saying that, I'm thinking about that right now. And I did have an extremely good editor mm. right from the start. Um, and I think that that was probably, and a very hard editor, mm. like really hard, like the kind of editor that would just make a person cry <laughs> because that's how, just, just a manner thing, you know, yeah. but also just like, this is how I want it. And this is what you need to do to get to that point. And it's incredible once you've done that a few times mm. and you don't want to cry every week mm. how yeah no you're right you're absolutely right it, it, it I can honestly probably go back to that 
taking some basic skill and turning it into something that is like this is how you put a story together. Yeah, never yeah. underestimate the never underestimate power no, of right. the red pen and how valuable that is. So seek Even it out. Even if it makes you cry. Yes. Mm. So that brings us almost to the end of our episode. I actually want to give a big shout out to all of our listeners because last week you asked them for some help to get you over 5,000 oh, yes. Twitter followers. and they got me there. Thank yes. you so much. I really appreciate it. Well I'm now done, a 5,000. I'm, I'm in the club. The yes. 5,000 Twitter follower club. Thank God. So if you do have a weird ask, I'd like to ask another favour because if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because that really helps us in the rankings so that we can reach more people and bring this mm. to more people. Mm. But in the meantime, what are you up to this week? Well, I'm, I'm as you know, I'm sold to you, Val. I'm getting very busy. <laughs> Very, very busy creating writer centre magic. What about very you? Very exciting. Well, after coming back from Brisbane, I'm really looking forward to just getting back into some exercise. You know what I mean? Mm, mm. That seven-minute workout. <laughs> seven-minute workout. Mm. Yes, the famous seven-minute workout. Mm. I think you should actually do a YouTube video of you doing the seven-minute workout not. so that we can all do it with you. I think not. Oh, come on. Uh, no. Liz and Tracy would love to help you with that. Oh, God. I so know they would. where can we find you online, Alison? Uh, you will find me at alisontate.com. You will find me on Twitter with my friends, my 5,000 friends, mm-hmm. um, at, at Al Tate, T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And, and you? Val? You will find me on uh, at Valerie Koo. K-H-O-O and all manner of social media. But I also want to do a shout out to Leah Weston before we go. Mm. And Leah has said, this is just a quick thank you for the Writer Centre podcast. I'm currently struggling with two books under contract plus running a retail business six days a week. Wow. Busy. It's so nice to listen to you and Alison when I'm cooking, driving and running with my dog. Sadly, those are the only times that I'm not working, writing or sleeping. The topics keep me inspired, which is a godsend at the moment as I'm trying not to freak out at the prospect of producing a novel in 18 months instead of my usual three years. You can do it, Leah. You can. you can do it. I also really appreciate the news and information too as they make up for my lack of Twitter trawling time. I don't belong to a writer's group, but in a way the podcast gives me a connection that I'm missing in my offline life. Anyway, oh. huge thanks to both of you for helping save my writer's brain. Well, you're most welcome and you are in our writer's group and I'm more than happy to, to trawl Twitter for you. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And uh, so, so that's Leah Weston and you can check her out at leahweston.com. But uh, that brings us to the end of our podcast. So we look forward to chatting to you all next week. So have a great week, everyone. Bye. This week's giveaway is The Killing Lessons by Saul Black, a thriller which follows San Francisco homicide detective Valerie Hart in pursuit of a psychopath. Visit writercentre.com.au slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday, 21 September 2015. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. There will be a new book giveaway at writercentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writercentre.com.au slash podcast.